I want to read for you this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. But before I do, let me just express my gratitude to Rob and the leadership here at Bromley Road for the privilege of being able to share with you in your ministry today. Uh, Rob and I go back to days in Tyndale together, and uh, we have connected various times over the years since, especially since he came to Ottawa. So it's a great privilege for me to be here, and I am grateful for that privilege to be here and share with you. Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word, and we're going to read from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear God's Word. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey this, the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and for its timeless nature and for the way it still speaks into our lives today. And we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are responsive to you and to your Holy Spirit speaking to us through what you've spoken in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question of the day today is, why do churches do bad things? And let's acknowledge right off the, the top that churches and Christians do do bad things. They do things that in the light of a brighter day uh, do not make sense, and they do things where people get hurt, where they get alienated. And so the question is a very real one for many of us who have had bad experiences in the church. Why do churches and Christians do bad things? My uncle in his early days living in Toronto, was barely making a living for himself, um, didn't have a lot of money. He was providing for his family and the necessities of life, and that was about it. But what, what he had, 
he was prepared to invest in his local church. And so he was the Sunday school superintendent for, for a number of years in that congregation. Until one Sunday, some well-meaning saint came up and said to him, having recognized that he wore the same suit every Sunday, have you only got one suit? And of course, that cut my uncle to the heart. He only had one suit, but he was there offering his services every Sunday just the same. Well, that comment became a change point in my uncle's life, and he rarely darkened the door of a church for the rest of his life. I think he went to funerals and the odd wedding, and that was about the only occasion where he would walk through the doors of a church because somebody made a stupid comment. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't go to church. When I was in university in Halifax, students used to like to go to one particular church in the evenings, and we all came to realize that this was known as the three-piece church. For males who went to the church, if you arrived one week dressed casually and you showed up the next week dressed casually, by the third week, some kind soul would take you aside and explain to you the dress code that for men, the expectation was that they should wear a three-piece suit to church. Well, when we discovered what the dress code was, most of us found another place to worship. I have a friend who was a pastor in a church in B.C., and the congregation, or element of the congregation, began to um, show great disrespect for the leadership of the church, and they began to bombard the leadership with mail. And it got to such an, a point that the leadership had to call in the RCMP, who rightly treated the mail that they were receiving as hate mail. These are things that ought not to be happening in the church. A number of years ago, I was a part of a uh, pastor's mentoring group in the States. And one of the pastors who was a part of that ministry admitted in his small group that he had been in an email relationship with a former girlfriend for over a year. Well, his group advised him that that's really a bad decision that he's making. And it wasn't too long before you you can see the the end coming. Um, and his marriage ended up in divorce, and uh, the email relationship turned into something else. We do crazy things. The first church that I pastored, when I arrived on the scene, the local district leadership said to me, we give this church about 20 years, but we figure that no matter what you do, this church will still close in 20 years. When I got to the congregation, the congregation said to me, well, we actually think the presbytery is being overly generous. We're a couple of key funerals from closing. What had happened was the previous pastor had gone through a difficult season. His wife had died of cancer, and he began to self-medicate with alcohol. And unfortunately, his alcoholism got to an extreme where those who were frequenters of the curling club would often find him on a Saturday evening drunken and under the tables of the curling club. And of course, the ministry lost respect within the community, and that was the ministry that I inherited. There is a history in the church of churches and Christians doing things that lead to uh, misrepresentation of the gospel, that alienate people, estrange them, and even hurt them. 
On a larger scale, the church has often participated in decisions that have not helped its esteem and its image in the world. In today's world, we hear all the time about residential schools and about the role that the church has played within them. And they have been a black eye, not only on government, but on churches who participated on in them because they simply adopted the values of the culture at large without examining them from a biblical perspective and doing something different or offering some criticism of what was happening at the time. And that's not just true of residential schools. It's been true of cultural imperialism that's for so many years marked our efforts and mission around the world. And so the church has done things on both a local scale and on a larger scale that have been hurtful to people. So the question is, why? Why do Christians and why do churches do bad things? Well, there's a number of factors that go into it, I think. And we could spend a month uncovering all of this, but I'm going to try and do it as briefly as I can to try and get to the root of why this happens. And on the first level, there are personal factors that contribute to it. And the most basic of personal factors is we're all sinners. We're all flawed people. We all make mistakes. We're all broken to some degree or another. And we're often driven by ego and by desire for power or control. We still struggle in the church with the same things our culture struggles with, the temptations that are provided by money, sex, and power. And we have lots of examples in the church of the failures that have come from people in dealing with those temptations. Even today, we are still influenced by broken people who are undiscerning about their own souls and their own hearts, and they become a part of the package of what happens in the life of the church. So on one level, the factors are pretty personal in terms of we're all sinners, we're all flawed, we're all broken, and we still do stupid things, things that hurt other people. We are all sinners. Our theology states that pretty clearly from the beginning. Uh, From Romans 3, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But unfortunately, in the church, we have too often like to pretend that we're not that bad a sinner or that we're not sinners at all. And that takes us to some more local contextual factors. Every church has its own culture. It has its own character that's often been developed over time by either the struggles of its history or by the strong personalities that have shaped it. And sometimes those cultures have healthy DNA, and sometimes they don't. Our normal in many of our churches becomes like the normal of our families. It's what we grew up with. It's what we know from our past. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually healthy. It may be normal to us, But we never discover that there's a healthy way of doing family until we're confronted either with another family that's doing it worse than us or another family that's doing it better than us from whom we can learn. And in the church, that's often been the case. Our culture has often been dysfunctional because that's been the normal we've grown up with and understood and now live in. But when the culture is broken... It perpetuates brokenness in the lives of the people who come. And the church becomes a place of power and struggle and hiddenness, rather than a place of openness 
transparency, and of grace. We get into behavior management pretty quickly in the church very often, rather than into character development. And that's one of the flaws, I think, that contributes on a local level to why churches do bad things. We become people who lean towards judgment rather than leaning into grace. But there's also another level of factors, and that's the institutional factors. And there's some of the denominational bad decisions that we participate in. So, for instance, residential schools would be one of those bad decisions that churches made, regardless of how well-intentioned they may have thought they were, were at the time, they were bad decisions, and we need to own that. But so was slavery that the church participated in for so many years. You can pick your poison here. There are lots of things that you can look at in the life and the history of the church that were bad decisions for which there needs to be repentance and humility. When the church blindly adopts the cultural values around it, it ceases to be helpful. It ceases to be a helpful voice for the culture or even for the church. Rather than providing a thoughtful analysis from a biblical perspective, in other words, when the church adopts culture's values, it loses its prophetic voice, where it's called to be in a missionary encounter with the culture. Instead, what's happened too often has been that rather than being in a missionary encounter or a mission outpost within our culture and our world, the church has become a franchisee. And too often we have simply spouted the franchise line rather than being thoughtful and reflective. And so we acknowledge that churches and people, Christians, do bad things. We acknowledge that we're flawed and that we're far from perfect. And that's the base reason why these bad things happen. So let me just pause here for a second. Some of you who are watching this today are people who have been hurt either by believers or by their churches. Something's happened in your life that has caused either a deep wound or a sense of alienation or hurt, maybe that you've never recovered from. So to you, I want to speak personally this morning and want to ask for your forgiveness on behalf of every pastor who's ever ever wounded or hurt another person, I ask for your forgiveness today. Would you meet me at the cross? And would you allow the grace of our Savior to cleanse both of us? For those who've been hurt by a church, let me address you. I ask for your forgiveness on behalf of the church. Because someone needs to address that pain in your, in your heart. But would you meet me at the cross too? Where we both can experience the grace of Jesus Christ. And therein lies the key for all of us. The church does bad things. People do bad things. But Jesus doesn't. And that is the focal point, should be the focal point of the church. We own that we're flawed. 
And it's symptomatic of how easily we lose focus on both Christ and the mission that he's given us in this world. How often there's been a disconnect between the message of good news that we proclaim and the bad news that we create. We are flawed. But I want to say this, and I mean it with all of my heart. We are flawed, both as individuals and as churches, but I still believe in the church. I still believe in that body of Christ that has been given a mandate to reach the world with the good news of the gospel that brings healing to the nations. I still believe that in spite of our human frailties and foibles and our mistakes, that we can be an influence for good and for transformation in the world today. Where Christ followers earnestly seek after God and his kingdom. And in doing so, seek the benefit of those who are around them, who seek to be a blessing. Where humility and repentance are the norm of the day and where we stop pretending that we've got our act all together. Where there's authenticity in our walk with Christ, where people see that, yes, we're flawed, but we're moving in the right direction. You know, being a Christian is not about our perfections. It's about the direction our lives are pointed in. And hopefully for all of us, the direction our lives are pointed in is the direction of the cross, where we're constantly moving forward in a progression in our relationship to Christ, living out our identity in Christ, so that more and more we begin to reflect him. That's the goal of the Christian life, to reflect Christ. Now, you've often heard it said by people, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. And my response to that is, yeah, it is. But where else would you like a hypocrite to go where they could learn about their own souls and begin to make changes in their lives and become less hypocritical? That, to me, is the ministry of Christ in the church. The church can still be an instrument of transformation today, in spite of our weakness. It can be an an instrument of transportation in individual lives and in communities. But it begins with each one of us paying attention to our own souls and our own relationship to Christ. When I became a Christian, there was a heavy emphasis on intellectual quotient. In other words, the knowledge that I should gain in my faith as I grow. And so the emphasis for me as a young Christian was sucking up all the information I, get, I could get about what it means to be a Christian, to spend time in, in the scriptures, learning the scriptures, becoming familiar with them, letting them speak into my lives and my life and change me. And reading books that could help me develop a a sound theology. And, of course, there have been many over the years who have questioned how sound my theology is. But that's a question that, that's, that's a reality that you can never please everybody. But just the same, there was a heavy emphasis in my life on the intellectual quotient. And then with that came the faith quotient. That as you grew in your relationship with Christ, then the emphasis becomes about the faith that you're exercising and how you're serving God, how you're using your gifts and talents. And I would say that for most of my life in ministry, those were the two quotients that dominated 
how I did ministry, how I thought about ministry, and how I thought about the Christian life. And they're an important part of discipleship, don't get me wrong. But there's another part that has, be, that has come to my attention over the last 15, 20 years. And that's the emotional quotient. And already some of you are saying, okay, don't talk to me about emotions. There's no place for emotions in the church. But I want to say to you that God gave you a brain that on one half deals with all the rationalities of life and the other half, half gives you emotion. And God intends you to, to worship with a full brain with mind fully engaged, but with heart fully engaged. He wants us to be passionate about him, but he also wants us to feel the emotions that come from brokenness and seeing broken people and being moved to do something to to benefit them, to bring healing and restoration. He wants our hearts to be moved with emotion for sinners who are lost and who do not know the way to eternal life. And so those three quotients, the IQ, the EQ, and the FQ, I think actually are what discipleship is all about in the church today. And the church needs to pay attention to all three of those. But as was my experience, the church has too often paid little attention to the EQ side. And as a result, broken leaders have broken people. Hurting people have hurt people. That seems to be the nature of life, that hurting people do hurt other people. Unaware of how toxic our own souls can be, we make others pay for what we're dealing with in our own souls. And so we see on many occasions a life in the church that's expressed in ways that don't necessarily match up with the message of the gospel or the standard of the scripture. A number of years ago, I was handed a document um, that showed the investments of the denomination I was a part of at the time. And as I looked through the document, I realized that our denomination was uh, heavily invested in things like distilleries, vineyards, and a host of all host of uh, um, other alcohol-producing um, manufacturers, and involved in arms manufacturers and so on. And as a person of addiction, I really had a hard time with my denomination making money on the brokenness of other people through the sale of alcohol. And so I began on my own to try and initiate some protest within the denomination. And it was at that time that others were beginning to take notice of the same thing. And the denomination, as a result, made a commitment to only have ethical investments that fit with the values of the church. Now, that's something that you can do, too, as a person of God. To be aware of what's being invested in your life that may not be beneficial for the kingdom of God or the blessing of others. When we talk about discipleship, those are all parts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I want us, just for a moment, to be reminded and and focus on the vision that Jesus had for the church. When Jesus announced his vision for ministry for himself, he really gave us a vision for our ministry as well. And this is from Isaiah 61. And you'll remember these words from Jesus' announcement in the synagogue. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted 
to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. They will renew ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. That was Jesus' mission statement. And it seems to me that that's what the church is supposed to be doing too. All those things that Jesus talked about there. Let's take it a step farther. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this to the disciples as they were going out to preach the kingdom. He said, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Isn't it interesting that in the church today, we love the last line of those verses, and we use it to encourage one another to be good stewards of the resources God has given to us. But the passage is really about being good stewards of the ministry, the message that's been entrusted to our care. And the message is about preaching that the kingdom of God is near. It's about demonstrating that the kingdom of God is, is near by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing people from leprosy, disease, and driving out demons. Now, I don't know what your church experience has been like, but I know that if I raised someone from the dead in one of my congregations in the last 40 years, it would indeed be a miracle, but it would create another problem there would be a lineup of ambulances at the door of the church for all the people who had a heart attack as a result because that was so far beyond their expectation of anything that should happen in church. And I can pretty much guarantee that there would be one other thing that would happen, and that is that there would be a firestorm unleashed in the church in which the pastor would usually be roasted. Isn't it funny that though Jesus says these are the evidence of his kingdom message being proclaimed, that we have such low expectation of them today. And yet, there it is. There's the message. And I, that convicts me, to tell you the truth. And it convicts me that most of our churches have such a low expectation of the ministry of power through the grace of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. So, as we think about this, and as we try and wrap this up, I don't want to focus on the flaws. I want to focus on what's good. And so let me paint for you some images of the church that come from the scripture. And the first image is this. It's the church as the church of the prodigal father, where sinners are welcomed, where they're loved, and where they're received. Sin is real, and so are the consequences. The prodigal father was well aware of the flaws of his son, but he welcomed him home. He loved on him. He celebrated him. And so we recognize that sin is real in our lives and in the lives of everybody who walks through the doors of our churches. We recognize that sin has consequences, but we have an assumption. 
And the assumption is this, that the person who walks through the door today will, by the grace and mercy of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the love of the church, be a different person when they leave. That's the assumption. The people will be different under the influence of the gospel and God's people. Different in a better way. The church of the prodigal father is the place where I awaken to Christ, to all that he's done for me, and where I awaken to his mercy available to me. It's where I have a sense of belonging, where I get initiated and celebrated. That's baptism in our church. It's where I can grow grow through the mistakes that I make into maturity in Christ, growing in Christ-likeness, the identity of Christ in us. That's discipleship, IQ, EQ, FQ. It's where I learn to engage my world with faith. That's called making disciples. And it's where I become less and Jesus becomes more like John the Baptist. Let me paint for you another image from the scripture, and that's the church as a teaching hospital. Now, that's based mostly on 1 Corinthians 12, that we all have a role to play in the ministry of Christ in the church. And I call it a teaching hospital because at one point in our lives or another, we all need a hospital. We either need it to be born in, we need it to be cared for when we're sick or injured or diseased, or we need it when we're dying. And the same is true of the church. We need the church to be a teaching hospital where people can be born, born again, where they can be healed, both physically and emotionally, where they can grow and develop, and where we can celebrate them in their transition from this world to the next. The church is that teaching hospital. It's where people come to get what they need when they need it, But at some point, we all get out of the bed and we pick up a a bedpan, we pick up a towel, we do something to join the care team to provide for those who are in worse shape than us. And that's basically the requirement. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be a step ahead of somebody else. Somebody else who is broken and hurting and needing a loving arm, a shoulder to lean on. At some point, we all get out of that bed And it becomes incumbent upon us to join the care team. A teaching hospital should be a safe place to unwrap your wounds. To be positioned before the great physician where you can receive the healing that you need for your life. Unfortunately, in so many of our churches, they have not been safe places to unwrap your wounds. They have been places to remain hidden for fear of rejection condemnation, and judgment. And yet the ministry of Jesus from Isaiah 61 reminds us that part of our ministry is helping unwrap the wounds of those who are broken and position them before Jesus where he can do what only he can do to bring transformation in their lives. I want to suggest to you four statements that I think are part of authentic Christian community. And they're not original to me. I stole them from Larry Crabb in his book, True Spiritual Community. But I think that where the church is becoming authentic, we hear these four statements in our lives. And the first statement is this, I see you. That's the prodigal father. Not unaware of the failure of his son, we are seen. 
And when people come through our doors, we need to communicate to them, we see you, we know you're here, we know you've got issues, we know you're broken, wounded, that there have been things in your life that you've been struggling with, we've got them too. But we will not reject you or condemn you just because you're like us. We see you. And as we see you, the second statement, we accept you. We don't post a sign at the entrance to the church as to what sins are acceptable as you enter and what sins are not. We just simply say, you're welcome. That's the prodigal father once again. Welcoming home sinners. And we accept people for where they are. Like I said before, we accept them where we are, but we also accept the assumption that they'll be different at some point when they leave because of the ministry of Christ that takes place in this church. And so I see you, I accept you, and as we walk together in trust, there's a third statement. I believe in you. I don't know how many times in your life you've had somebody communicate to you that they believe in you. I admit that it hasn't been very often in my life, but there have been one or two people who have communicated that to me, and I can't tell you what a difference that's made in my life to know that there are people who believe in me, who believe that there's more to me than the baggage I've brought. There's more to me than the struggles I've had. There's more to me than the potential I see in myself. And that takes us to the fourth statement of authentic Christian community, and that is, I pour into you. That's the investment we make in each other, that we pour our resources of our lives into the lives of others so that they may grow in their understanding of their relationship with Christ and move forward, move in the direction of the cross. Let me paint one last image for you, and it's taken from the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 16. And it's the image of the church as a garden. I like to think of it as a spice garden. I've got no reason for thinking that it's a spice garden, but that's the image I'm drawn towards. And in Song of Solomon, the beloved expresses her longing that the fragrance of her garden would waft over the walls to the point that it grabs her beloved by the nose and draws him in. As we seek to live out our identity in Christ, We want the fragrance of Christ to waft out of the garden of our lives and grab people by the nose and draw them in. Let me tell you about the significance of this image. When I was in Ohio in this pastor's mentoring group, one of the things we often used to do on a Tuesday night was go to Jake's restaurant, which was burger night. And one night when we were there... um, We were placing our orders, and every time the waitress came to our table, I could smell this fragrance, and I lost all ability to focus on the conversation. The guys would keep talking around the table, and I would just be in la-la land with this fragrance. And after a couple of visits to to the table, I realized it was the waitress. And so I sucked up some courage, and I said, I've got to ask you, What is the fragrance that you're wearing? Because every time you walk by our table, I lose the ability to concentrate. And so she told me the name of the perfume. And on the way home from Ohio, I bought it for my wife. And it turns out she didn't like it. I did, 
but she didn't. That's the way it goes sometimes. But there's an image for you. A fragrance that grabs people by the nose and draws them in so that they become acquainted with the garden. We want to remove, though, in our gardens, the garbage that can stink the place up. That's one of the things that contributes to the bad things that happen in people's lives in relationship to churches. We want to be attentive to the garbage that we bring and make sure that we're being diligent and seeing it removed, not just from the churches, but from our individual lives. It's where the followers of Christ regularly pray David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me and see if there is any wicked way in me. As we pray that prayer, we take the first steps to taking out the garbage. So in humility, we own our failures. But we also repent of those failures, the mistakes that we've made. And I want to give you another word to go with this. As we repent, which is breaking the pattern of where we've been going in the past, we also want to replant where there's been something that's been taking away life, let's plant something that gives life. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives so our lives become that fragrant garden and the church becomes populated with people who have that fragrant garden as their center. We're on a journey. We're on a journey of transformation. We are transformed. We're being transformed by the grace of Jesus and the love of Christ. But we also have it as our desire to be transforming in this world. And all these things point to a church that goes back to 1 Peter 2, where we began today. A church that remembers that it is chosen by God. It's not self-made. It's made for a purpose, a mission that comes from God, that makes us different from every other group, every other organization in the world. We remember that we are a royal priesthood. We're not self-appointed judges, but ministers of reconciliation. We're a holy people, a holy nation, a people called to bless the nations by our lives and our ministry. We're a people who belong to God. Not citizens of the world and its values, but citizens of a kingdom that is to come, but that is near. And we're a people who declare God's praises about what he's done, not what we've done, but what he's done. So that his praise can increase in the world. And we are a people who have been called into a marvelous light not a people who are called to perpetuate darkness, which so often we do when we follow the world's values. The enemy loves to dull our sight so that light and darkness look similar to us. But we're wise to his ways. And we pray, search me, O God. In humility today, may we commit ourselves to walking in the light to removing the obstacles of faith for others, to living winsome lives for Christ, where we and people who see us can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Christians and churches will always do bad, stupid things until we reach heaven because we're still imperfect. But there is one who never makes mistakes and who never fails. And he is at the center of this organization we call the church, this assembly. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who bled and died for this church, for you and for me. And when we get our eyes off of him, all kinds of other things happen. So let's commit today to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who's preparing his bride for the day when she will be pure and spotless. And may it ever be our ambition to be on that journey, to be made pure and spotless in Christ. I believe in the church. In spite of its flaws and its foibles, I believe in the church. But I believe even more so in Jesus Christ, who's the one who gave birth to the church. And I invite you today to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, you are acquainted with sin. You know full well what it's like to live in a world full of sinners. For it was sinners who betrayed you, sinners who crucified you, sinners who deserted you, and sinners you chose to be the foundation of your message going out into the world. Lord, we repent of the things that we've done that have caused hurt to you, hurt to others, and shame to your church. And we invite your Holy Spirit to replant in our lives things that bring life. And may our lives within your church reflect a church that is a church of the prodigal father, a church that is a teaching hospital, and a church that is a spice garden, that others may taste and see that you are good. Oh Lord, use us. Use us to bring glory and honor to you and to bless those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.